What up, Brad fans? Welcome back to the show. Thank you for tuning in. Um, I got some comments, but already I got teased about uh, asking everybody to subscribe and follow the show. Um, I'm not going to let that stop me. So please do subscribe wherever you get in your pods. Rate us, comment, leave a question. Uh, follow us at 2Brad4U on Twitter, Instagram. Follow me uh, on both those at bvampiredon. Uh, I was just thinking, I don't really care about the follows, but uh, it's how you can send in your questions. And it seems like that's the easiest way to do it. Maybe I'll make an email address uh, and do it that way. I I don't know. Now I'm just talking off the top of my head here. Um, Go to the website, tobradforyou.wordpress.com. You can contact the show there uh, and send in any questions, thoughts you have. Much appreciated. Thank you for all those that have done that. Um, Also, the website is going to be a good resource because today's episode, maybe it's a bit rushed, um, but I'm going on vacation next week. So, you know, I wanted to get something out for you guys. And uh, it's just me again. I'm alone. Um, And I went through uh, two topics, Um, whether we should reopen schools, the data around kids, Uh, and coronavirus, how much they're getting it, uh, are they passing it on, Uh, and I wanted to introduce a new segment, uh, Vaccine Races, where we uh, are going to follow the who's leading in the vaccine race for coronavirus and sort of update you as that progresses. Um, So I talked a little bit about what the different phases of the trials are, it's pretty straightforward, Uh, and then who's where. So all of the stuff that I talked about today is going to be sourced in the on the website, in the show notes and extras. So, one, you can see how much work I'm doing for you guys. All the sources that I'm pulling up, and you can judge that they're good sources. These are examples of good sources to look at. Um, and also just so that you, you, know, you can get more information if you so choose. So... Thank you all for listening. Subscribe, follow, all that good stuff. I hope you find this one uh, useful. Um, And then when I get back from vacation, hopefully we have uh, more people back as well, more co-hosts, so you guys don't have to just hear me drone on and on and on uh, about all of this lovely stuff. And now I'll stop because I got nowhere else to go. Here's the episode. Thank y'all. All right, folks. Today we're going to be talking about kids and COVID-19. Should we be using kids in Operation Human Shield? Should we run them out on the front lines because they're little virus sponges that suck up corona, but they don't get sick and and they don't pass it on? In all seriousness, we're talking about schools and whether we should reopen them or not. Um, There was a recent report that came out from Germany that claimed that schools are not hotspots of infection, and the lead author even went as far to say that kids may be acting as a break on the chain of infections, uh, which to me when I heard that was a bold, bold claim, I thought. Um, And 
this German study was being passed around in a WhatsApp group uh, from some friends of mine back in Calgary. One of one of those friends then suggested that I should cover it in the podcast. So here we are covering it on the podcast. So WhatsApp to all of you uh, back in Calgary. Um, the, 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 the issue of schools is, is a hot topic. I mean, I don't want to dive into the, the situation in the U.S. too much because they just that's an extreme example of them politicizing everything. But I do want to, like, here's my, you know, little tangent at the beginning is basically this isn't there is no binary option here it's not like you know when you think of the same the same thing with the with the economy open the economy or fight the disease it's not one or the other it's you have to look at it as a blend of both you can't you can't open schools and not fight the disease you can't uh, just close schools and not fight the disease just closing schools is not going to fight the disease you can't have an economy without workers you can't have kids if they're getting sick and you can't have kids in school if they're getting sick it's like it's just so much more nuanced than that so the question really should be is yes we need to open schools people need to kids need to go to school they need an education um but what is the plan what is the plan for doing it that should be the focus is what is the plan and what is the data telling us um and that's what i'm going to dig into today is the data behind kids how much they're getting it um you know we know you've heard the reports that they don't get as sick which is appears to be true um but what is the how how likely are they to transmit it and stuff and there's still a lot of questions out there but thankfully the data is improving my last tangent before i get into this is to me this is just another thing that coronavirus has highlighted is that how important schools are in terms of childcare, in terms of, you know, our kids' education and stuff like that, socializing them, everything, and that maybe this is something that we should take seriously when it comes to making sure they're well-funded and safe and taken care of, you know, and for the people that are struggling with having kids at home right now and working, it's like now maybe some of these people are getting a taste of what it's like for single parent households, single income households, and how child care for working parents is such a big thing. Uh, and maybe that's something that we should be, you know, prioritizing as a society. And I know, I know, I know, it's going to cost too much, it costs too much, it's going to, how are we going to pay for that? Well, personally, maybe we need to realize that if we want nice things, we're going to have to pay for them. So, you know, we just got to readjust some of our priorities here and make sure that our kids can safely go to school and make sure that people have access to health, uh, child care. And, you know, those people will be able to get out into the, into the workforce and help the economy. So anyway, that's my little tangent. I know, I know. Here's Brad again from the loony left, the radical left, whatever. Anyway, let's dig into it. What do we know about children in COVID-19? So we know that they don't get sick as often. When they do get it, they don't get, they don't appear to get it as sick as often. Um, but they still can get it. And so I went looking for some studies to kind of find out what percentage of cases are, are children. And so we're defining children here as uh, 19 years and younger. 
And so when you look at all the cases, um, this is from a review of evidence from China, South Korea, the U.S., and Taiwan, where they were looking at um, numbers of cases, total numbers of cases, and what percentage of those were kids, uh, again, defined as 19 and younger. And we found that we see that the range is about 2.2% to 6.4% of these cases are children. Now, I just want to make another little side note here, um, just a little point of how we have to remember that these are large numbers. So when we see these percentages, they can seem small, right? 2.2% or even when you look at like case fatality rate or uh, fatality rate overall, you know, it's like 1%, something like that. It, it can seem small. Um, and there's a report from the end of March in The Lancet, the journal The Lancet, that's about COVID-19 infections in kids. Um, and this was, they're citing evidence from the largest review of children from China. And that found that in a sample of like about 2,000 kids, 5.6 of them had severe disease. Um, and 0.6% of them uh, developed respiratory or multi-organ failure or acute respiratory distress syndrome. So I don't have to tell you that respiratory or multi-organ failure is bad. You know, even if they don't die from it, that can cause some long-lasting damage. And we're seeing reports that the disease in general may cause long-term effects. But anyway, let's just look at the number of school-aged kids in Canada, for example. In 2017, that was 5.5 million. Now, what I'm about to do is not the right way to accurately define risk in kids. Um, this is a very crude, you know, I'm just taking a percentage and then chopping the percentage down, as you'll see. Um, so it's not the right way to define risk in kids uh, in a population and stuff like that. It's, it's, it's not. I'm just trying to make a point that, well, hopefully you'll see my point. So let's say of these 5.5 million kids... 1% of them get infected. That's 550,000 kids. Now, if 0.6% of those suffer organ failure, that's 33,000 kids. And that would be on top of all the other regular shit that happens to kids. And I'm only saying this because I still see people throwing out, you know, flu numbers or, you know, deaths accident rates saying, you know, well, you know, this or that kills or maims more people. So why are we so concerned about this? But it's like you, you would be having your regular amount of disease, accidents, whatever, in a population, and then you could be potentially adding, you know, around 33,000 more onto that pile. So that's just, it's just a dumb argument to like take other things and say, well, this kills more, that kills more. Anyway, and again, like I said, that's not the correct way you would define disease or risk in this population, you know, because I'm, let's say 2.2% of all COVID cases uh, are children. You can't just take that 2.2% and then apply it to all kids in school and think that it's just, it's not how it works. But anyway, that was just the point I was trying to make is that when you see these percentages and stuff like that, just remember that even a low percentage of a high population 
of a high number is going to be a high number. And so if these percentages and stuff seem low, when you put it into terms of actual people and people that could be affected by this, it's a staggering number. So anyway, sidebar over. So we know kids get it. They're getting it, you know, like I said, you know, of all the cases, it's anywhere between 2% to 6% roughly appear to be kids. But we know that they don't get sick or die as often. Now, why is that? Nobody knows. That's the answer. Nobody knows. There are some theories, though, um, from the Mayo Clinic website, uh, their little info spiel on coronavirus and kids. Some of the theories that are being bandied about is it's possible that kids are getting some level of protection because they get lots of colds already, and uh, colds can be caused by a variety of other coronaviruses. So if they're getting all these other little coronaviruses that are causing just mild colds, they might be getting antibodies uh, for those that offer some level of protection um, to the to the to COVID nineteen. So basically, because they're already like, you know, snotty-nosed little monsters that, you know, have all these coronaviruses in them, they're getting some kind of immunity from that. Um, it could also simply be that their immune system reacts differently than adults do. One of the reasons that some adults are seeming to get sick is an overreaction of the immune system. So inflammation um, that's damaging lungs and leading to pneumonia and stuff like that. So... And also, I mean, this isn't the first disease to affect kids and adults differently. I mean, think of chickenpox. I mean, we all were encouraged to get chickenpox when we were young and then so that we wouldn't get it when, when we were older, when it's more serious. Um, so totally different diseases, but, you know, it's not unheard of that a virus affects kids differently than, than adults. Um, so kids are less likely to get sick and die. But what about transmission? What do we know about kids passing on the disease? So any parent will tell you that when their kid comes home from school, which is, you know, like basically like a Petri dish, uh, you know, they got their grubby hands, their runny nose, you know, then illness just rips through the house. And there's influenza studies, too, that show that kids are big contributors to, to, um, to influenza spread. So if the kids are getting corona, are they passing it on? Well, they are. there are encouraging signs that they don't pass it on very often, this German study being the latest to report this. Um, but I did some digging, and the most recent stuff I could find was, uh, first off, a, an article published in July in the Archives of Disease in Childhood, which is part of the British Medical Journal. I only say all these these journal names so that you know that I'm not getting this from, like, rebel news or you know info wars or whatever right like these are i'm looking for credible journals you know i'm doing the work for you guys to find the information so in this uh the authors make the case that kids should go back to school uh, they cite some evidence from iceland south korea and italy that all show that when they did testing in these countries, in different communities and in different scenarios, some of it was targeted testing at high-risk groups, some of it was just, um, you know, going to different communities, I think in Iceland, and they sort of invited people to come in. They said, come in and get a test. We'd like to get the numbers, and we'd like you to know. Um, they found that children weren't coming up as, as often as positive. Um, 
This was also the case in situations where kids were living in households with positive individuals. Um, and this article also talked about some data from international family clusters of disease and clusters of disease in China that showed that kids are unlikely to be the source of these clusters or what's called the index case. So if you hear that term index case, it basically just means like the first case of a cluster. And what we mean by clusters is like once they've identified, um, you know, it all comes back to contact tracing. Once you've identified someone uh, who's sick, you then, you know, find all the people around them that are sick. And you kind of set up these boundaries of like, this is a cluster of disease. It started at this, um, you know, choir practice or this bar or in this household and stuff like that. And with your contact tracing, you can define the cluster, right? And then through, you know, talking to the people there, you can begin to see like who got sick first and find the index case. So who started the whole thing? Who started the train? Um, and what they're finding is that kids are very often not the cause of these clusters. I think the when they were looking at different clusters in different nations, the international family clusters, it was like 10% of all the clusters were started by kids. Um, and there was even a case study that you may have heard of that reported a kid in the French Alps that was positive and then didn't infect anyone despite coming into contact with like 100 people. Um, there's also studies in Australia and the Netherlands that are showing similar things. So in Australia, I believe they tested uh, teachers and students and they found that there was no evidence that the kids were giving it to the teachers. Um, in the Netherlands, a similar thing. So what did the German study find? So the German study tested like 1,541 kids aged grade within grade 8 to 11 uh, and 504 teachers um, aged between 30 and 66 and this was in the state of Saxony so if you're familiar with the city of Dresden in that area um, so within this sample uh, of again about 1500 kids and 500 teachers they found that they could conclusively say that 12 of them had antibodies. And obviously we know there's, there's issues with the antibody testing, so they did like this double testing procedure. If you tested positive once, you, they tested you again, and uh, you had to have like two, two out of three positive tests or something like that. So they did try to account for that, false positives and stuff like that. Um, and so in this uh, study, they also found that in, you know, in this study population, there were 24 households in which a family member prior to the, prior to the study had, had previously tested positive. And from that, only one apparent infection was found, uh, you know, for which there was antibodies, that they detected antibodies within the test. So basically meaning they knew that 24 households before uh, the study had a test, but when they did the study, only one of the only one infection uh, was found amongst those twenty four households. Only one person with antibodies was found amongst those twenty four households. So, according to one of the lead the leads on this study, Professor Reinhard Berner, who is the clinical director 
of the clinic, sorry, he's the clinic director of the clinic and polyclinic for pediatric and adolescent medicine of the university clinic, Carl Gustav Karas. Oh, that's a mouthful, of course. Leave it to the Germans to have an impossibly long title. Um, so according to Professor Reinhard Berner, uh, he says, quote, we are going into the summer vacation 2020 with an immunity status that is no different from that in March 2020. Of the more than 2,000 blood samples examined, only 12 were able to detect antibodies, which corresponds to a share of well below 1%. This means that silent, symptom-free infection in the students and teachers we examined has so far occurred less frequently than we had suspected. He goes on to say, uh, regarding those 24 households where they only found one infection, uh, quote, these results these results of the investigation provide evidence that virus transmission in families is not as dynamic as previously thought. More than 20 of the examined subjects had at least one proven corona case in the family. However, antibodies were found in only one of these study participants, which would mean that the majority of school children did not go through an infection themselves, despite an infection in the household. This finding must also be taken into account when it comes to deciding on measures to limit contact. So, what does it mean? It means it's all good signs. It's 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 good signs, but there there is caveats. Um, you know, this is an evolving situation. Uh, it's going to change. Um, it depends on the level of virus that's in your community already. Um, Saxony, the state in which this study took place had one of the lower overall case numbers, I believe. So they had less virus in the community already. Um, I still have questions uh, about this study. I believe they did testing um, at the beginning. So in, in March or May, I think they did it in May. Um, but the study's not, it's not published. It's just on the university website. Like it's not in a journal yet. Um, so it's on the university website and all the resources, of course, are going to be linked to in the show notes on the website to bradforyou.wordpress.com. Um, but I mean, testing when you did the testing would matter, obviously. Uh, and we still don't know how long antibodies last for. So, you know, that also is going to depend on when you do your testing. You know, if you, if you started the test, uh, in March and you just tested everybody in March and then said, oh, hey, look at the levels are fine, you know, but I believe they did some kind of um, either testing everybody near the end or a subsample near the end. So I'm, I'm still unclear on that. I don't know what the, um, how, how full the schools are. You know, I think they did 13 schools, but how many kids are in those schools? What's the classroom size? Um, I assume there was distancing measures in place. I think that's across all of Germany. The schools are doing that. Some schools I know are doing uh, staggered days where their kids are going in some days uh, and not others. Uh, so kind of a blend um, or they're prioritizing opening um, younger, younger grades first. Um, so there's a lot of things that could still be at play here. So my point basically is just that 
yes, like I said at the top, we need to open schools. That's 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 true. And there's good evidence here and that schools can be safe uh, for both the teachers and the students. Um, and this is, you know, my brother's a teacher. Um, my mother worked in a school for a long time. She's retired now. I know a lot of teachers. And I think that, you know, that, would, that this is a worry. This is a concern for them because... Just because, like I said, we know from experience before that other diseases can move quickly in a, in a, in a school setting, so I can understand the reluctance. Um, and I also understand the parents that need to <laughs> need to get their kids out of the house. Um, and we should be able to do it. There's no reason there's no reason you can't do it if you have the virus under control. Um, and you implement measures like there's if this isn't a situation where you just go back to school as normal no there still has to be mask wearing there still has to be measures in place for distancing and stuff until we can get really robust um surveillance so antibody testing and and know uh exactly what how all these things are playing out you know how many kids have it how many kids had it did anyone get sick from those kids, you know, because there's, there's, like I said, still the caveats with the, um, you know, the false positives and false negatives and that with those testings. But there's, it's also possible that there's um, in these, you know, I'm talking about these studies uh, where they were just seeing how many, what numbers of kids were getting sick or were getting COVID. Um, you know, what if there's biases in that sampling procedure? Um you know, when you're trying to swab a kid and they're squirming, are you getting a good sample? Um, maybe they don't carry as much virus, um, you know, all these things. So we're, there's still it's caution, I guess, is the, is the thing that I'm saying. And we're seeing it become more and more, you know, obviously the U.S. is, is the prime example of this, but all of this stuff getting so politicized. And it's it's not a matter of yes or no. It's a matter of what's the plan. You know what I mean? Um, I think that's that's the important thing to to remember here. And you know, there's different questions that are going to have to be um, answered. Like I said, how do you space out desks? How many kids are going to be back in a room at one time? Um, how many uh, uh, kids are allowed uh, out at recess? Where are they going to eat lunch in a cafeteria or in their classroom? Masks. Um, are going to be needed, of course. And when when are you required to wear a mask? Is it all day? Is it uh, just at certain times? Um, can we provide hygiene stations, you know, disinfectant and soap and everything like that for, you know, throughout all the schools? Because they're going to need more of that. Um, how do we protect vulnerable teachers? Do we do a mix of... Uh, online learning you know on the staggered days if you're doing staggered days where kids come one day and not the other you could do online learning the other day and maybe the teachers that are more vulnerable uh, have underlying conditions maybe they do that online teaching it's not a it's not an easy thing to navigate but yes we should be able to get schools open in places like europe canada um southeast asia and it looks like that that, that that's happening 
Um, so this is all good news. And I think it could be a nice success story, you know, to show like, hey, this is how we, with a good plan um, and taking into account, you know, the safety of everybody involved, we can start to, to pull things back, you know. Um, I, th- I would say my last point is just that underlying all of this, you need to have always, 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 always in these situations moving forward, a robust testing and contact tracing system, you know, because we have to know where and when people are getting sick. And if there is a school where an outbreak does happen, you need to know if there's a family that has a bunch of cases, we need to know so that those kids could maybe be, okay, you have to, um, you know, we need to put extra precautions in or you can't go to school for a couple days or something like this. Like, it sounds shitty to have to, like, say that to somebody. Well, you can't go to school because your brother got sick or because you're just... But these are the questions that we're going to have to start navigating. So that's a little spiel on um, schools and what we're going to do. It looks hopeful. Uh, We'll see in the fall whether there's a second wave in the fall. Because, again, if there's just rampant transmission going on in the community it's going to be harder to open schools uh so we'll look to the fall and we'll look to be we'll look to be getting these little rascals back in school eh? back where they belong learning arithmetic becoming the 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 doctors and scientists and social workers and everything else that we're going to need moving forward uh for the pandemic that comes in the next 20 years who knows All right, moving on from schools, we're going to now introduce a new segment here on the show. Maybe the name will change, I'm not sure yet, but it's the vaccine races. It's on, baby. The race for the coronavirus vaccine. Uh, It's begun. It's it's on its way. There's some news coming out about uh, a couple of the phase two trials with one vaccine moving into phase three trials shortly. Uh, But before we get into the actual race, who's got a dog in the race, a horse in the race, what the status status of the race is, let's briefly talk about what the the phases are, you know, what the vaccine phases are, vaccine trial phases are. You're going to hear a lot about this. You hear, you know, it's the same for any sort of treatment or anything like that. In clinical trials, there's phase one, two, three, four. What does that mean? Well, let's start with preclinical. So before you even get to phase one, all that stuff, you have preclinical. So preclinical is basically done in the labs. There's no humans involved. It's when they determine, you know, what antigen they're going to use. So what what is going to be the core of the vaccine? What is going to be the thing that they use, that they expose the immune system to, to generate the immune response? Um, can be a, a, a number of different things. Uh and this is also where they start to get an idea of the approximate dose that they're going to need, uh, whether it's going to be a pill or an injection, yada, yada. And they're doing this stuff in like cell culture and, you know, animal studies are done at this at this stage to kind of just initially verify uh, all of this information and get some idea of initial toxicity. Obviously, if it's killing all the cells, if it's killing a bunch of rabbits you might want to halt, uh, push the brakes there. But once you get through all that, you get to phase one. 
introducing your vaccine to a human population. So this is going to be done on small numbers of people, tens in the tens, something like this. Uh, and this is where you start the the groups, the, the vaccine and the control or the placebo group. So um, the placebo can, you know, can be a straight placebo where there's like nothing in it. Um, it can be an adjuvant containing cocktail. So many vaccines uh, are, they include adjuvants in the, in the pill or the injection that you're getting. And these are, these are just things that are added to the, to the mix um, that actually just like help stimulate the immune system. So uh, I can't think of any examples off the top of my head. I think they might, maybe they still use mercury. I know that was a big deal uh, amongst anti-vaxxers and I think it's fine. I can't remember the data. Sorry, I should have looked that up. But anyway, there's these things that you just put in there and they're safe. Don't worry anti-vax people it's all safe this is why you do the trials um but it's just something that um helps boost the immune system helps get the immune system going so the immune system will come and look at your vaccine and start making antibodies um so you can do you can have that cocktail of stuff that you're going to use uh and then just not have the, the actual active antigen or vaccine element in there um, or sometimes they even use another established vaccine that's meant to protect against another pathogen. And there would be pros and cons to doing any of these different methods. We're not going to go into that. It's not that important for what we're talking about. Um, and then in this, you give this to these two groups uh, and you start collecting data on antibody production. You start looking at whether the people are getting sick from the disease you're trying to vaccinate against or some other disease. Um, in some cases, a vaccine might cause you to be more susceptible to another disease. Um, you're also looking obviously at side effects uh, in this in this stage, in all stages, you're, you're looking for side effects. Um, and then all this information goes into coming up with a statistic that they use to estimate the protective efficacy of the vaccine. And then you have to also determine, you know, if there was any statistical difference between the vaccine and control groups, obviously. Um, and then all this data goes into the decision whether you move to phase two, ramping up the size. So basically the rest of the phases is more or less just sort of ramping up the size, giving it to more people. Um, phase two, you're basically looking at hundreds of, of people. You're doing the same thing. Um, any of the changes to dosing and schedule that you found maybe in phase one, you can test out here. Um, and you're expanding the, the, the group of people that you're giving it to so that there's a more diverse, uh, set of people. So that way you'll see different genetic differences, uh, that might react to the vaccine, all of this kind of stuff. Um, and you can start to test out different schedules. So schedules is just like when you need to get each dose. Is it once every two months, once every two weeks? Do you need three of those doses? Do you need four of those doses? That kind of stuff. Um, and from here, phase three and four is really like ramping up the numbers even more. Uh, so phase three, you're looking at like hundreds of thousands. 
um, continuing to monitor the immune, immune response, side effects, toxicity, all of that stuff. And phase four is really like just a long term. So you're kind of rolling it out and it's it's just like the long term uh, long term study. So this is going to be the thing with with coronavirus because we're trying to do this so quickly. I mean, the, the, the fastest vaccine that we ever came up with, uh, I think, was measles or mumps. And it was like three or four years. So we're trying to do this like super fast. And how, you know, who wants to... <laughs> This sounds bad, but do you want to be the first people to to get it when we, we you know, we haven't looked at what's, what the effects are uh, over three, four, five years? However, I'm not saying that to be alarmist. It's, you know, the, the, the science on these trials is pretty good. Like, it's, a, it's an established method. We have the phases. We know what the phases are. Um, so it's all going to be done in the best possible, in the best possible way. Um, so that kind of gives us an idea of what we're looking at when we're looking at the news and we're seeing, you know, well, this one's phase two, this one's phase three, blah, 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 all that stuff. And Stat Magazine has a really great, uh, tracker, coronavirus vaccines tracker. They also have a treatments tracker, which basically just gives you a table of, you know, where everything's at. So that's what I'm using to get a lot to get this next set of of information and look at where where we're at. This is the vaccine race. Who who's who's on top? Who's ahead? What's it looking like? Um, I'm not going to talk about preclinical stuff because those losers are in the dust. They haven't even left the starting gate yet. Um, but as of now, we have five that are in phase one trials and two that are in phase two trials. So of the ones that are in phase one, I'm not gonna go through all of them, um, but they all have their own strategy, right? Like there's no there's no one set way to make a vaccine. Like I said, you can have different um, antigens that they're targeting uh, and then different ways to kind of produce that. So there's a couple that, um, stood out to me when I'm looking at these these phase ones that I'll just I'll relate to you because they sound crazy they sound a little weird um so company Novavax is in phase one um as of May 26 they began their phase one and they're planning to enroll 130 volunteers and they're expecting that the data is going to come out in July so soon I guess um and so this company works on a vaccine that begins in the ovaries of an insect. Again, according to the Stat News vaccine tracker, the company's vaccine platform involves genetically engineering a harmless virus and exposing it to cells isolated from worms. Those cells then churn out proteins needed to stimulate antibodies and those proteins become vaccines. There you go. So it's a protein-based vaccine. Um, weird i don't know exactly how that works this is a, a topic for another show i want to just quickly do the do the the vaccine race let you know what the status is um BioNTech and pfizer german german company uh is working on a bunch of mrna vaccines so messenger rna vaccines um and they're planning to develop them all in parallel um so they're you know kind of a shotgun approach um, so they're using strands of messenger RNA, 
to help generate protective antibodies. So this messenger RNA, I'm assuming, comes from uh, is based on the virus RNA. Um, as of July one, they're in phase one, and the vaccine led to an increase in coronavirus antibodies at three doses, according to one of their preprint papers. Uh, who else is in phase one? Um, company called Innovio Pharmaceuticals. They say that it led to a response in 94% of patients, but there's no data provided. And there's the other one of note, CanSino Biologics. So this is a Chinese uh, company. It's using technology that led to a China-approved Ebola virus vaccine. Um, this involves taking a snippet of the coronavirus genetic code and entwining it with the harmless virus, thereby exposing uh, healthy volunteers to the novel infection and spurring the production of antibodies. Interesting. Uh, I bring this one up because this is the one that you may have heard that back on June 29th, the Chinese regulators provisionally approved uh, this vaccine for use in the military. <laughs> so they were going to give it to their soldiers. Um, I'm sure this is just another reason why it's super fun to be a soldier in China. So, phase two. These are the front runners. These are the guys in the lead. Uh, so first, let's talk about Sinovac. Another Chinese uh, company headquartered in Bi in Beijing, uh, they're using an inactivated version of the coronavirus. Um, and it was the same. They've used this technology previously to make vaccines for hepatitis A, B, swine flu, avian flu, and the virus that causes hand, foot, and mouth disease. Uh, so... According to the Stat News website here, we have Sinovac on June 14th released preliminary results from its Phase 2 trial, saying the vaccine induced neutralizing antibodies in, quote, above 90% of participants. I don't know how much more data we have on that, though. Um, the big one that seems to be uh, getting the most attention, as far as I can see, in the medical news sphere is Moderna. So... They, Moderna Therapeutics, uh, are in phase two. I believe this is an American company. Um, they're in phase two. Uh, they have, a, again, a messenger RNA vaccine. It's a synthetic messenger RNA. So they produced all the RNA strands in, in the lab. Um, it encodes for a protein found on the surface of the novel coronavirus. Uh, and then by compelling cells to produce that protein, so you put it, um, the messenger RNA into a cell, uh, that vaccine would spur an immune response, causing the body to generate antibodies that would protect against infection. Interesting. Um, so this company previously set a drug industry record with this technology, identifying uh, a vaccine candidate just 42 days after the novel coronavirus was sequenced. Um, so this one appears to be the front runner, uh, and they are going to be moving to phase three quickly. So they just released uh, a paper uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, detailing the results of their phase two trial. 
um, and they were good. The results were good. Uh, it showed this is a study that was run by the National Institutes of Health in the U.S. and volunteers who received the vaccine had more neutralizing antibodies than have been seen in most patients who have recovered from COVID-19. This from an article again in Stat News that I will link to titled First Data for Moderna's COVID-19 Vaccine Show It Spurs an Immune Response. Um, Stat News, as always, is a great place to get uh, information on this. And Helen Branswell, follow her on Twitter. Um, she's, you know, one of the best reporters in the biz on these topics. So I know I'm taking their stuff and bringing it to you, but go to the source and check it out. Um, so apparently this data mirrored results um, from the Pfizer and BioNTech vaccine, uh, which uh, those which we already talked about. Um, and now Moderna posted a listing on uh, the clinicaltrials.gov, which is a registry uh, where all clinical trials get registered. Um, and it says that they're going to start phase three in 30,000 patients on July 27th. So like like, like, oh my God, like in a week and a half. Um, so yeah, that's good. Um, Pfizer and BioNTech are planning to start their own big study by the end of the month. So also the end of July. Uh, and according to the World Health Organization, there's 23 overall vaccines in human clinical trials. So that's where we're at. Watch Moderna, watch Pfizer and BioNTech, uh, the Chinese companies also coming in here, coming in here strong, Sinovac and CanSino Biologics. Personally, I'm interested in the insect ovary one. We might have to do a whole episode on that because that just sounds wild. Um, and yeah, I apologize if some of this doesn't make sense. Some of the, you know, technology or process of making them i kind of just rattled off the stuff um from the stat news vaccine tracker but do follow the link on the show notes to this page uh so you can you can follow along and check all this stuff out and i'm going to be doing i'm going to be updating the vaccine races as we go along maybe we'll expand it into the treatment races but i don't know we'll see they're off and they're off on the vaccine races, Moderna in the lead, Sinovac coming up behind. Sorry, I, I won't do that again. Um, all right, that's it. That's everything I have, folks. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, I'm on vacation next week, so, you know, there, there'll be a little lag. Uh, so that's why I wanted to get this one out for you. Hopefully, uh, when I get back from vacation, we'll, I won't be alone, and then... You know, you won't have to put up with just me. I'll get some of my more entertaining uh, co-hosts to join me. Brad uh, should be back, and, and we'll get those other guys in here too. Uh, and hopefully we'll get some in-conversation episodes um, done in August uh, for you to enjoy. Thank you again so much for listening. Uh, I appreciate it. Subscribe. Follow us. I know you're sick of hearing it at too bad for you uh, on the platforms uh, at bvamparadon uh, subscribe
subscribe on your podcast app, rate us, comment, leave a question, send us your questions. As you can see, I'm here working tirelessly for you to get you the information that you need. Thank you so much. Take care, everyone. Stay safe. I'll see you when I get back. Bye now.